All right, we're back. We got about 15 minutes left. Let's let's keep doing science. That's always fun. Apparently, the heated debate on how the Earth got its oceans continues to uh, roil. In the wake of the somewhat somewhat surprising finding last year that the moon's got lots of water on its surface, scientists have found water on an asteroid for the first time. Last May, scientists using instruments uh, at uh, in Hawaii found that Themis a large asteroid that orbits between Mars and Jupiter, is frosted with a layer of water ice. The slush appears to contain carbon compounds of a sort that likely gave rise to life on Earth billions of years ago. Planetary scientist Dale Cruikshank told Scientific American, They have found something a lot of people, including myself, have been chasing in the solar system for a long time. The Earth was formed about 4.6 billion years ago. About 4 billion years ago, we got bombarded with comets and asteroids. And... Speculation is if they, if they were icy, those objects may have filled the ocean basins with water. But wait, hold the phone. Other scientists have probed, probed comets to conclude that they are richer in deuterium, which is a stable isotope of hydrogen. Apparently comets have more of it than we have in our oceans. They think that if asteroids uh, and comets that hit the Earth, there should be more of that uh, isotope, along perhaps with more platinum and other rare elements that are more common in extraterrestrial materials than they are here on Earth. Remember years ago when uh, David Levy was part of a press conference with uh, Eugene and Caroline Shoemaker talking about the uh, impact of uh, the comet named after the three of them on Jupiter. Levy paused at one point to say, just a minute, I need a glass of, I need to have a drink of comet. And uh, speaking of... uh, the fringes of our solar system, the Kuiper Belt, the icy objects which orbit past Neptune, had their first occultation several months back where one of the objects passed in front of a star, which is no mean feat. These Kuiper Belt objects are so far away that the locations of their, uh, their narrow occultation paths on stars can't be predicted to better than a few thousand miles. Nevertheless, in October of uh, 2009, they figured that an object known only as 55637 was going to uh, pass in front of a much brighter star. It turned out that the observers on Earth uh, only picked up the occultation in a few locations, which means it's smaller than they thought. Its diameter is estimated to be about 177 miles, if it's you know assuming that it's roughly round, which means that uh, smaller, being smaller than they expected, it must be brighter than people expected. It's not a dark gray to black object, but must be brilliant white, at least 20% reflective, which is a surprising result. And I guess once they got a hang of these, uh, I guess once scientists got the hang of these occultations, they went to look and see what would happen when Eris, the largest Kuiper Belt object, they thought, passed in front of a star. Eris uh, was one of the the main uh, reasons why Pluto got demoted a couple years back. Our best estimates showed that it was a little bit bigger than Pluto, and once Pluto got demoted to being only the second largest Kuiper Belt object, it was kind of hard for some people to call it a planet. Well, apparently Eris passed in front of a star recently. They got a good measurement on it, and guess what? It turns out it's just a hair smaller than Pluto. Now what? Of course, people are pretty confident if they keep looking long enough, they're going to find, you know, numerous objects that uh, are the size of Pluto or larger. And uh, Radio Parallax is divided on this. I do support Neil deGrasse Tyson and others 
such as the recently departed Brian Marsden, you know, a guy we always wanted to have on this show. He he passed away last week, and uh, we'll have to talk about that in a future obituary. But uh, I do support the demotion of Pluto. Mr. McMillan does not. <laughs> he judges it highly premature. And in conjunction with our rather delightful talk with Mary Roach about packing about her book Packing for Mars earlier this year, we have kind of a uh, curious story. Apparently someone's gotten into a bit of trouble over at NASA for leaking the fact that uh, they are giving thought to the idea that if astronauts want to go to Mars, it, it might turn out to be a one-way trip. As Mary Roach pointed out at length in her book, a six-month uh, voyage without gravity is pretty tough on the human body. Of course, no one's sure how we do on Mars, which only has 38% of Earth's gravity, but it certainly would be better off, would be better off than uh, in a spacecraft. But people don't like to think about making a one-way trip out into space. I'm sure there are many, many volunteers. If you said, uh, you know, you got to go to Mars and you ain't coming back, they would, they would be lined up around the block. And of course, you didn't, if, you didn't, if you didn't have to include a lot of fuel to uh, blast off the Martian surface with, you could send more food and drink and videos and couches and chairs and stuff. People have accused NASA of thinking too uh, conservatively, and I'm, I'm kind of encouraged by this. We need to actually weigh all the alternatives. And uh, yes, I had a debate with someone a couple weeks back about the idea of going into space. And, you know, a lot of people think it's just a big waste of money to send humans up there. And um, I don't think so. I've said it before, but here's my logic again. The military-industrial complex is going to take its disproportionate share of our economy. It's just going to continue to take that, uh, that resource. And if they're going to do it, it'd be nice to have them uh, doing something that was at least not harmful. Going to Mars is not harmful. Blowing people up in the Middle East is, particularly when there's no good reason to do so. So doggone it, I say let's go to Mars and let's go now. I think it's a better idea than all these ideas of taking space tourists up and down. Some people have done the math on that. That seems like a bad idea. They're talking how within three years, they may be able to launch two flights a day into suborbital space for citizens and researchers with a hankering for high-altitude travel. But they note that the increased rocket exhaust from such trips could alter the climate uh, in a bad way. The rockets spew carbon black, which absorbs sunlight and warms the atmosphere. Also, the heat-trapping rocket exhaust is injected directly in the stratosphere, where it lingers for years. I guess if they can figure out a way to put out sulfate or sulfuric acid while these things are going up, maybe they can do that, uh, that geoengineering to save us from global warming. But I guess we probably shouldn't give them any bad ideas. Anyway, I'm just not sold on this idea of sending people up for a quick trip up above the atmosphere and back down again. But the truth is that's a hell of a lot easier than it is to achieve orbital velocity. So that's going to be space tourism for the foreseeable future, and I'm not sure I like the look of it. Of course, among the other disappointments of uh, President Obama's tenure in the White House has been the fact that he's being kind of a wuss about this whole space thing. Although, we will grant you, it makes more sense to go out and visit an asteroid than it does to return astronauts to the moon for numerous reasons. But again, if the military industry is going to take that share of our resources, hey, let's put people on the moon. Let's get together with the Euro Europeans and launch the Terrestrial Planet Finder. NASA's backing away from that mission, and, uh, you know, it would put up a, 
uh, an array of space telescopes which would look at places like uh, like this like the planet Gliese 581G which is orbiting out in the Goldilocks zone around its uh, parent star you know an interesting place um, place to look for life I don't expect we're going to find it but it's a good place to look and we like the article by Mark Coffin in the Washington Post uh, in October which noted that scientists now believe there are tens of billions of planets the general size and bulk of the Earth in our Milky Way galaxy alone, which is a conclusion based on four years of viewing of a small section of the nighttime sky. In a paper published in the journal Science, it was estimated that, that um, one quarter of the stars similar to our sun will have Earth-sized planets orbiting them. This is the first estimate based on actual measurements of the fraction of stars that have Earth-sized planets. This is based on observations from the Keck Observatory in Hawaii. These are only estimates, but uh, we're going to get some very interesting data back in the not-too-distant future about uh, planets orbiting other stars, and, and, you know, that is going to be interesting stuff. And if you're curious about uh, the handicapping that the scientists uh, came up with, they're figuring that 100 typical sun-like stars uh, would lead you to find around them two planets the size of Jupiter, six the size of Neptune, and 12 super-Earths between three and ten times the size of our planet. This progression led to the conclusion that, that 100 sun-like stars would be orbited by 23 planets sized between one-half of an Earth and two Earths, which is a lot of Earths. Oh, and final item we're finally getting around to that from a previous show about who's the oddball. Article by Laura Spinney, a new scientist, which says, well, don't take this the wrong way, reader, but you have a weird way of thinking. And by you, we mean you, dear listener. Apparently someone took a look at research done in the human psychology and <laughs> looked at published results and concluded that 96% of the guinea pigs in such studies come from Western industrialized countries more, more than two-thirds of them were psychology undergraduate students, which I have to admit would tend to make you think some biases might be creeping in. But the article labeled such people weird. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic noted that the majority of the human population on this planet has quite a different way of thinking. In fact, as researchers study different cultures, uh, they're concluding that... Uh, there's huge differences in fundamental areas of cognition, which vary from our sense of self and reasoning style to our morality and how we perceive the world. Notes the article, New Scientist Readers and its writers, and we would add, presumably Radio Parallax listeners, really are among the strangest people on Earth. For example, they did a subjective equality test of those, uh, that optical illusion you're familiar with of the lines going uh, one way and uh, going outward in one line and inward in the other, and how that, that makes the inward line going figure look shorter. Well, at least it does to us. If you show it to people living out in the Kalahari Desert, <laughs> they don't see it that way. They don't see it as an optical illusion. They're able to accurately gauge that the two lines are the same length. Whereas you're testing psychology students, the lines have to be as much as 20% difference for them to notice. There's differences between Eastern and Western cultures. Westerners tend to be more inclined to reason analytically, focusing on categories and laws, while Easterners tend to re reason holistically. They pay more attention to patterns and their context. And if you check different cultures across the globe, 
most people are holistic. The article notes that this may explain some of the anomalies seen in IQ testing around the world. The standard IQ test, for example, they look for analytical answers. That's considered correct, whereas holistic answers are considered incorrect, although the majority of humanity would respond wrongly to those questions. We're running out of time, so we can't talk about uh, this article at greater length, but it's such a good one that uh, it took us a while to get to us, and we're not quite done with it yet. We'll probably talk about it again on next week's show. Sorry to say, we're again out of time. This program, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We will have our uh, last pre-Christmas show next week, and we'll uh, see you then. (laughs) 